Hey, deserving listeners, we have a very special guest on the podcast to promote a very interesting book. Very smart guy. We've had him on the podcast before. Why don't you introduce yourself and what your book is about? Of course, Kirk. And thank you again for inviting me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be back. <laughs> well, The Blind Spots Between Us talks about how we can improve our relationships. The subtitle is How to Address the Unconscious Cognitive Biases and Build Better Relationships. Cognitive biases, you might have heard this term, you might have not, but these are the dangerous judgment errors we make because of how our brain is wired. And unfortunately, there are way too many of these errors that cause us to really screw up our relationships in very dangerous ways, very problematic ways. So this is the first book that actually focuses on what are cognitive biases in relationships, how do they damage our relationships, and what are the steps we can take to address these cognitive biases that harm our relationships so much. And everything is based on the cutting-edge cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics which is my area of expertise. I've spent about 15 years researching these topics. And that's the, what the new book is about, focusing on how do you apply this research in relationships, in pragmatic situations, a lot of narrative, a lot of stories, as well as the science mixed in with all the citations for all of you people who like to nerd out on the psychology of it. <laughs> yeah, I read your book a while back, and I really loved the way it was laid out in that it it's very scientific and very empirically minded, lots of research, lots of technical stuff, but not too much. And then it uh, pretty easily uh, transitions and provides examples of everyday life that uh, we get involved in. What are some examples of those that are in your book? Some examples of people having trouble as well. There are lots of examples. So one clear example is called the illusion of transparency. The illusion of transparency has to do with how we tend to assume that other people understand us very well. And unfortunately, other people don't understand us nearly as well as we assume they do. So the illusion of transparency is one of these cognitive biases. And that specifically has to do with the fact that we feel these cognitive biases come from our feelings, from our instincts, from our intuitions, from our gut reactions, from the primal savage part of ourselves. So when we communicate, we feel pretty good about our communications. We think we are saying the perfect thing in order to get the other person to hear our message. That's how it feels to us. That's how the illusion of transparency feels to us. Now, unfortunately, the other person may not be getting at all what we're saying because it's an illusion. <laughs> we are trying to convey to them our message and we think that they're perfectly getting it, but the research on this topic shows that they really are not getting it nearly as well as we think they are for a number of reasons. One is the terminology that you use might be different from the terminology another person uses. You know, what does a couple mean to you? What does a few mean to you? What does several mean to you? All of these things might mean different things to different people, but you think you might communicate effectively when you're saying, you know, get back to me in a few hours about this topic. And then there's going to be a conflicts and communications about this. And that's just one example. There are so many examples of where words can mean different things to different people, and they don't get that these words mean different things to different people and that they hurt their collaboration because these words mean different things to different people. Now, of course, that's just words. That's just what you're saying. The other thing to think about is the filter that the other person applies to what you're saying because they interpret what you're saying through their filters, through their perspectives. They're only paying attention to certain things and the things that they're paying attention to may not be the things that 
you want them to pay attention to. So that's how you fall into the illusion of transparency. And I have a story in the book that about a date where a couple of people went into who fell into the illusion of transparency. We can talk about that or we can talk about something else, but that's the yeah. broader principle. Yeah. Give us that, that example. It sounds interesting. So there were two people. Uh, there were actually both casual acquaintances of mine and there was George and there was Mary. So they went on a date and George had a great time. So he had a wonderful time. He thought that, you know, Mary was so understanding, such a wonderful listener. She really got what he was trying to convey that, so yeah, so he really felt understood. He really felt heard. And so when they parted, George was very much looking forward to the next date. And so they agreed, Mary and George agreed to schedule the next date. So George then texted Mary and to arrange their next date. But Mary didn't text back. So George was kind of upset and he, you know, waited for a day, sent Mary a Facebook message. Now, George, because Facebook Messenger knows this, allows this, he saw that Mary saw his message, but she didn't respond. And he sent in her an email, but there was just radio silence in return. And he just got increasingly frustrated with each message, as you can easily imagine. And he just gave up trying to contact her. And he was like, oh, what a disappointment. You know, just like all the other women, you know, I don't know what's wrong with women. Why are they doing such weird stuff and not getting back to me? Well, why did Mary not get back to George? From what I learned later, it was because of the way that George behaved. She had a different experience than George did on that date. She's a polite and shy. George is a very loud <laughs> extrovert. She, Mary, is a polite and shy introvert. So she felt overwhelmed from the start with the kind of information that George was talking about, his energetic, his extrovert personality. And she was thinking, you know, why would I want to date someone who overwhelms me like that? So she, that's what she was thinking when George was telling her all about himself, his life, and so on his parents, job, friends, without asking her anything about herself. So she listened politely to George. She didn't want to hurt his feelings. And then she told George she'd go out with him again without having any intention of doing so. So this was the perspective of the two people, of George and Mary. Now, I learned about this because George, after he had that, after Mary started not responding to him, he started complaining about the situation to people around him. And I knew Mary. So I heard George talking about the situation. So I heard his perspective and I knew Mary as well. And I contacted her to get her perspective. And so she told me what she, what she experienced. Now you, so this is kind of how I learned about the situation. Mary told me that she was very clearly sending to George nonverbal signals of that she was lacking interest in his story, that she wanted him to stop, you know, but that George wasn't responding. And she felt very um, upset that George wasn't getting her signals and increasingly upset, overwhelmed, and so on. So she was pretty clear that she wouldn't go out on a date with him again. And you might see it as problematic that Mary didn't tell him clearly that I don't want to go out with you again or didn't respond to his texts, didn't respond to his emails. And, you know, that's not, it's not the best thing for Mary to do, of course. I totally agree with that. But you have to realize there are many Marys out there who are polite, shy, and conflict avoidant and who are going to try to avoid conflicts and send nonverbal signals, even though they might not see or clear to you. In turn, there are so many Georges out there who are extroverted, energetic, and this extroversion energy, they impede George, the Georges, from reading other people's nonverbal signals. So both of them fell into the illusion of transparency, where George thought that Mary was having a great time, 
by listening to him because you know he was sharing and therefore obviously the people who are listening to him should have a great time because he's such a great guy and has such great things to share and mary was feeling overwhelmed trying to send nonverbal signals getting increasingly upset that george was overwhelming her but she, you know george didn't stop and so that is an example of the illusion of transparency in romantic relationships it happens pretty often and can be very damaging yeah, so that's really interesting. And to be clear, in your book, you really lay out the science behind all of that. And then you go into these, you know, very common stories that most of us can relate to. When I hear this bias of transparency, I think of a lot of different things. One of the things that I think about is something that I realized a long time ago is that I found that there in general are two different kinds of people. The kind of people who, when uh, you have a conversation, you express interest by asking questions, by listening, and waiting for the other person to stop talking about whatever they're talking about before you chime in about your own things. The other person is the sort of person who expresses interest in what you're saying by sharing their own experience. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I'm, I'm kind of in the second category. Mm-hmm. And when these two people meet, uh, they don't understand each other. So, for example, like someone tells me a story about, oh my God, you know, I was at work and my boss was, you know, such a jerk. And then I might say like, oh my God, I, I totally know what you're talking about. My boss was a jerk. And then I'll, I might tell like a five minute story the first person might be thinking that I'm narcissistic by uh, chiming in with my own story and not asking them more, more questions. And then, uh, so then the first person starts asking me all these questions about my story and then Mm -hmm. it blossoms into 45 minutes when really I only wanted to talk about it for a few minutes (laughs) and I'm misinterpreting them by uh, thinking, why aren't they participating? You know, why are mm. they being such a wet blanket? You know, mm. why are they being so uh, deflated and kind of uh, standoffish with me? Why aren't they engaging with me? So when I get together with someone like me, like Umberto, my co-host is like this too. It's like, I tell a story, he tells a story, I tell a story, he yeah. tells a story, he, I, I tell a point, he tells a point. And occasionally I will say something like, oh, that's interesting or or, oh, I get your point, but that's not usually what we're doing. What It's sort of implied or it's just not really necessary to grease the wheels. Whereas, <laughs> you know, the other person who is waiting for that, you know, question, you know, question mm-hmm. or they, they think the other person is, is mean and the people like me think the other people are wet blankets. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's all this nonverbal stuff that we're trying to communicate. You know, when the person is being a wet blanket, they're actually trying to communicate. I want you to ask me about me. You know, they're trying to passively communicate. It's pretty clear. They think they're being very clear. Like clearly, like an example you gave, she's like, I was giving so many signals that I was not interested in his story. Um, I mean, it was so obvious. You know, I was sighing. I stopped asking questions. I yawned five times. Um, I, you know, I, sort of leaned back in my chair and kind of had this defeated look on my face. And he just kept talking and talking and talking. And this, these misunderstandings and you start to think the other person is, you know, 
problematic when they're just kind of coming from a different place. And this idea of like, well, surely everyone understands what I'm trying to get across to the other person. <laughs> the other thing I think about is, <clears throat> is phenomenology or phenomenological therapy, which uh, was pioneered by Carl Rogers, and I talk about this often. And mm-hmm. this bias that you talk about is right up my alley in this way because the idea is, is that we never really know what other people are talking about, right? And we have to assume that at least the first pass at communication, we don't really know what they're saying. You know, a client says to me, I'm really upset or I'm really sad or I'm really happy or I'm really angry about block, you know, you know, whatever they're talking about. We have no idea what that exactly means until we ask for more information. You know, what does that mean when you're angry? Like, what does it feel when you're angry? Tell me more of the thoughts. Tell me more of the sensations. Tell me more of your meanings around anger. And through that investigation, that phenomenological style of, of uh, you know, asking people questions, not only do we actually get a, be- a much better idea, and we also have to, quote, unquote, bracket our own experience so that we don't mm-hmm. make assumptions. Not only are we better able to get at what the person is trying to tell us, but it has this sort of therapy, this very in, uh, significant therapeutic effect when, we're, when we feel heard, you know, by someone else when they, when they don't assume that they know what we're talking about and they really take the time to get to know what we're talking about, mm-hmm. it feels uh, very connecting and very uh, soothing to, to have someone else understand us truly and to take the time to understand us. And so when I hear that, that bias, it has a lot of application mm-hmm. to therapy. Half of our listeners are counselors and and so uh, your book might be able to further inspire and maybe provide that background science as to, um, you know, as a therapist, it's very important that you understand your clients, right? Yes. And that you don't just assume that uh, the communication is uh, easily uh, received and decoded accurately with just like typical ways of talking about things. That's, that's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, this book uh, it was published by New Harbinger, which is which is a publisher that specifically specializes in publishing for therapists as well as for a broad audience. So it has specific exercises that therapists can use and bring it to their audience, to their clients, help their clients make better decisions about their relationships and address cognitive biases, both in the way they talk to their clients and helping their clients as well. So just want to highlight that, make that clear since you brought up the therapist audience. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's another example of a cognitive bias that gets in the way of us uh, understanding each other? Mm-hmm. I wanted to, before we talk to that, I just want to speak to a brief point to what you just said about how people interact differently. I think one of the really interesting things that I found out, you know, going a little bit deeper into George's story, when I was speaking to him later about Mary's perspective, he told me that he kind of noticed signs of Mary's disengagement. And what he did when he did that was start speaking faster and louder and more intensely. He didn't stop yeah. and he didn't inquire what was going on with her. But right. his natural intuitive response was like, oh, I must not be engaging her enough. Let me go on more. Let me shout. Let me not shout, but, you know, speak more excitedly, more, you know, give more interesting examples or stuff like that. Because, again, he couldn't imagine that that's not what she was looking for. Just like it's probably viscerally hard 
for you, Kirk, to understand <laughs> that the other person may not be looking for a story. You've obviously learned that over time as a therapist, that your natural intuitions are not may not lead you in the right directions always. But for very many people who don't have your expertise and background and who are not quite as aware of themselves, it's definitely an easy trap to fall into, including, of course, many therapists who try to engage with their clients in the way that it's most natural for the therapist to engage with the client rather than the way that's most functional for the client, which might often be very difficult for the therapist. Yeah, I can absolutely relate to George. We sound very similar in terms <laughs> of our assumptions or our communication style. <laughs> when I have reflected back as a professor and looked back on interactions with students that I regretted or mm. things went wrong or, uh, you know, I walked away from going like, well, that, something about that just didn't feel right. Uh, I would say half the time it's due to what George suffers from as well, that when I see a student who has a confused look on their face or they seem a little displeased with, you know, the instruction I'm giving or the guidance that I'm giving, I will mistake the solution to being, well, I just have to step on the gas mm. <laughs> or I have to explain this from 10 other directions to convince this person because once they truly understand what's in my heart and mind, then that, that confused face will go away. But it, you know, almost all the time, a better response that I've learned is to simply stop and say like, I see a confused face. What's, what's happening? Mm. You know, tell me more instead of just bulldozing over to try to like bulldoze the confused face away. Um, it's like, you know, just stop, listen, take a back seat for a second. Um, usually things go a lot better for me. Yeah. That's an important insight. Actually, there's another cognitive bias that's very much related to that. It's called curse of knowledge. So the, that is the actual term for this bias, which describes difficulties in communicating around differences in knowledge. And uh, there's a story I have about this, not with a, this actually happened to me personally. So I'm sharing from my experience and not from a date, but actually from a friend. So I had a friend who wanted to teach me how to play the drums. And well, I wanted to learn how to play the drums. I knew the friend wanted it and he was excited about teaching me. So, okay, so I decided to try it out. He told me, you know, don't worry, it's going to be easy, it's going to be fine. So he led me to his drum set. He sat me down, he told me to first hit the rack tom and then the brass drum. So I have no idea what the rack tom is or what the brass drum is. So I asked him to explain them to me, like, what's up? What is this? What is this? Uh, so then he spent some time explaining what they are and a couple of other drums. He told me to play the drums that he indicated, hitting them half a second apart and keeping up the rhythm. I couldn't do that. I'm like trying to tap one and like trying to tap the other. I'm not doing, I'm barely doing like tapping them in the order that he indicated. There's absolutely no rhythm. So I was quickly confused. And he, in turn, he grew increasingly frustrated. He just took over. He like showed me how he did it. And he was doing it awesomely, very clearly, very smoothly and so on, making it look totally easy. But I tried it then myself, but I just couldn't get the movements right. And he, the directions that he gave me, he was giving me weren't great. I was getting more frustrated with myself and he was getting more frustrated with me while trying to give me his appropriate directions. So kind of ended up in a little bit of an argument. Um, and uh, we, it wasn't like angry, but it was like tense, frustrating. 
and I was that was back in the time when I was still young. I was not. I didn't really know the stuff about the curse of knowledge and all of these problems. Where, when I learned about this cognitive bias when I was going for my PhD, then said it with my friend, it really came up in my mind quickly, and I realized that that was a perfect illustration of the curse of knowledge. Where, when we have knowledge, when we know a topic, especially a skill set, uh, so we have you know, some skills which is usually associated with some information, we think it's easy. <laughs> right now, it seems very easy to drive a car, like. Driving a car, duh, easy, right? <laughs> that's how it feels. And you know, playing a drum kit or whatever, that's how it feels. To me, you know, doing public speaking is pretty easy because I've done it many times before. I'm very comfortable with it. But these are things that would be very hard for somebody else to do without them knowing all of the little sub-skills that a broad skill takes and all the knowledge and all the jargon and all the practice, you know, having, you know, drumming is like an example where it's the physical practice of it is very hard to learn. It takes time, but then you're comfortable doing it once you actually do it. So that's the curse of knowledge is one of these things that I've seen so often really hurt people's relationships because it seems easy and the other person seems dumb for not getting it if you're the one who is who is teaching the person and it's just such a difficult experience for someone who has that knowledge and while the person being taught is feeling very frustrated because they're not getting what you're telling them and they're you're giving them too hard of an example too hard of a problem too quickly. So that is a, something that is a big gap in people who try to convey, communicate to others, whether in a personal romantic relationship, whether friendship, whether at work, whether in civic communities or whatnot. So that's a big one I want to highlight. Yeah, that's a great one. And I don't think I've ever really thought about that one before, but it makes total sense. I've experienced it before. As a student in a class, I would often feel like uh, some instructors would teach to a group of students that were like them. Like they, mm-hmm. they designed a class that was designed for for them or just below them. And I'd be thinking, we're like 30 <laughs> years from you and you're, ta- and you're, you got to start from the beginning, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're, we don't even know anything about anything. And uh, so I can definitely relate to that. And of course, as a professor, um, I try to keep that in mind when I teach my students of just like, you know, for lack of a better <laughs> descriptor, just how stupid they really are, you know, which is fine. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no, there's nothing wrong with not knowing about something. Of course you don't know about it. That's why you're in school. And yeah. so I try to make sure that I, as a teacher, repeatedly bring things up. And also when I'm with other professors and we're talking about students, I try to, uh, remember and also add to the conversation. Well, you know, these students, they don't know anything. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that they don't remember things, you know, because one of the common complaints that professors have is um, this student, you know, half of my students don't remember the stuff that they studied in a previous class, or they don't have the ability yeah. to integrate it very well. And they seem surprised by that. And I'm always like, do you remember what it was like to be a graduate student? Because um, yeah, it might take me 50, re- re- you know, repetitions before it really kind of gets into my bones. And, uh, uh, so I think a lot of professors suffer from that bias, um, yeah. you know, and it's good for us to remember that, uh, that is a co- very common human bias, which makes sense. You know, I, I can remember, um, uh, my dad trying to teach me how to drive a car. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had that. Yeah. My dad was not great at doing that. Yep. Yeah. yeah my, my, my dad's a lovely guy. He's very nice. But, uh, you know, my very first time, and of course, we, we had a stick shift and, and he, he, he just, he got frustrated when I was trying to, <laughs> when I was trying to drive. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, for you, Gleb, do you, you know, you've read, you've written this book, you've been studying it for years. How has this changed your life personally? Oh, it's definitely, this stuff has changed my life in a number of ways where I have becoming more aware of it has helped me make much better decisions within my relationship. So I'll give an example. I have learned that one of my biggest biases is called the optimism bias. Now, the optimism bias is kind of like what it sounds, where I tend to be too optimistic about the future. I think the future will be bright. I think the world is a nice, friendly place intuitively. I feel, not I think. I feel that the world is nice. I have too high expectations for myself or other people. I'm risk blind, so I tend to focus on opportunities rather than threats. So I tend to have very positive impressions of the future. Now, my wife and I, we have been together since 2003, but in our, the tensest time in our relationship was in the spring of 2014, or one of the big tense times in our relationship was in the spring of 2014, when we founded a nonprofit together called Intentional Insights. And the point of the nonprofit was actually to promote. So I've been doing in academia for 15 years, training, consulting, coaching on these topics and addressing cognitive biases for professionals of all sorts for 20 years. And we decided that it was going to be a good time to popularize the research to a broad audience, which, you know, not simply for money. And so we started a nonprofit in 2014. Now, that immediately with the association, when she and I co-founded this nonprofit, we started to have many, many conflicts. We never worked on a big, major project, serious project like this before. We have to make plans, make strategies, have a lot of projects, and we had a lot of conflicts. So we were trying to figure this out, and we eventually figured out that the conflicts, you know, I had these ideas, I was generating lots of ideas, and she was just shooting them down. She was like, no, these are bad ideas. I had, you know, these, looking at these opportunities, she's saying, no, they're, they're too risky. So we figured out that her her big bias in this area is called the pessimism bias. Pessimism bias is actually the opposite of the optimism bias, where people tend to be too risk avoidant. They tend to be too pessimistic about the future. They feel that the world is a hostile place, generally speaking. You know, the glasses have empty and not have full, and the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill, even though it's sometimes green. So that's kind of how folks like that are. And so that was a really tough time for my wife and I. Now, fortunately, we figured out a way to work together once we found out about this cognitive bias, and we looked at some of the research on debiasing, which this book goes extensively into. How do you actually solve each of these cognitive biases? And so for the optimism and pessimism bias, the way to work together for people to work together, whether it's as a couple, as friends, as in a workplace, on a team, you know, in your club, church, whatever, civic group, civil group, secular group, whatever, the best way to work is for optimists and pessimists to work as a separate, separately, actually, in the first part of idea generation, where the optimists are the kind of people who have 20 ideas before breakfast, and they think all of these ideas are brilliant. That's me. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. Now, I have learned to my bitter experience that not all of these ideas are brilliant, unfortunately. So what I needed to do and what we did with Intentional Insights and other projects that we then collaborate on later was I had my 20 brilliant ideas and I gave them over to my wife, Agnes. 
And then Agnes looked at them and she said, well, you know, maybe these three are worth keeping. <laughs> these are all have baked potatoes and let's take these three, which are the least bad, <laughs> and then finish baking them further. So pessimists are terrible at generating ideas. That's not their strength. They're really good at selecting ideas because they see the exaggerated flaws of each idea. They generally tend not to come up with ideas because they see these flaws. But when you give them 20 ideas, they can quickly select, you know, these are out, you know, these three are worth looking at, and then they can fix the flaws in these ideas and implement them effectively. So that's the strength of people who are more pessimistic. And of course, it exists on a binary. So it exists on a spectrum. It's not a binary. It's not black and white. Some people are more pessimistic. Some people are less pessimistic. But overall, the pessimistic spectrum, some people are more optimistic, less optimistic, but still in the optimistic spectrum. And so I'm pretty strongly optimistic, and she's pretty strongly pessimistic. So you want to think about whether there's people in your life with whom are impacted by this dynamic. Whether you're optimistic, you're pessimistic, you will have conflicts with people that feel like they are, if you're an optimist, always shooting down your ideas. If you're a pessimist, it feels like people around you are always coming up with cookie ideas and going off half cocked. <laughs> you know, that's just how it feels to people who are of the opposite perspective. And it's not, neither of these is a better thing or a worse thing. The best thing is to collaborate together and know how to do it well. The best teams, the best couples, the best partnerships are involve someone who is optimistic and who is pessimistic, with the optimist creating the ideas, the pessimists evaluating the quality, and then implementing the best ones. Yeah, I, me and my wife are the same way as you and your wife. I'm the optimist, and mm. she's she's the pessimist. I mean, she's not an extreme pessimist, but uh, there is a there's a frequent dynamic where I'm throwing out ideas uh, and. Uh, and she's shooting down ideas and I, and I feel like defeated and, and, mm. and I'm sure there's frequent times when she feels like I'm being irresponsible and, and impulsive with my ideas of what to do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with this idea of like, sure, it'll work out, you know, things will be fine. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And uh, I, I have over time chose to narrativize that difference as like, well, you know, we're kind of yin and yang in that way. And it helps because I, I probably do take too many risks and I probably do need someone to point stuff out. An example of this is like, um, I'll be driving and she will point something out. You know, she'll be like, uh, there's a stop sign coming up or something. And even though I can totally see the stop sign uh, and it sort of annoys me when she points it out, but I think, well, if one out of a hundred times I actually didn't see the stop sign, then, you know, it might save our lives. <laughs> and so if I can put up with 99 <laughs> pessimistic pointing outing things that I don't need to get that one that might actually help. And if I can sort of just sort of, well, that's how she is. She, she likes to point stuff out. She's worried. She wants to mm -hmm. communicate that to me. And okay, you know, I see it. Um, in, instead of, uh, taking it as an insult because because yeah. uh, it's a different way of looking at the world and a different way of managing one's um, kind of cost risk, you know, benefit analysis kind of thing. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So with all the COVID-19 coronavirus stuff that's happening, uh, I'm guessing that a lot of people are asking you or maybe you're thinking about how these cognitive biases affect us individually, uh, governments, um, you know, the United States government, yeah. uh, there are people who seemingly exhibit a very optimistic way of looking at things and other people that, that look th at things more pessimistically. Uh, and it, 
and it seems like one of those things that when you look at the data, there's a lot of different stories that one could develop based on the data. You know, some people are like, Oh my God, it's like this, this wave of death that's coming over. And other people are like, you know, the flu comes and kills everyone. Uh, and we just, we don't even care to focus on it um, every year. And I just hear a lot of different opinions of, so what are your thoughts? How does your book apply to what we're going through right now? Well, it applies in a couple of different ways. One is the broader decision-making that we make on it, and one other, one more specific one is about our relationships. So one of the things, and I'm going to say something that's combined, one of the things that we really need to understand is where these cognitive biases come from. They come from how our brain is wired, and a lot of the wiring in our brain comes from our evolutionary background. We are wired, our emotions, our feelings, our intuitions, our gut reactions, the primal savage self is not wired for the modern environment. It's actually wired for the savanna environment. When we were hunters and gatherers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. So what way do we respond to threats in that environment? Well, of course, it's the fight or flight response. You might have heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response where we had to jump at 100 shadows to flee successfully from a saber-toothed tiger or, you know, to not skip the stop sign, right? <laughs> so... That is the kind of response we generally go to when we see a threat. And that is overwhelmingly what people are going to when they're seeing the threat of COVID-19. So the people, on the one hand, you have people who are doing panic buying of some stuff that they actually won't need. Now, there's some stuff that you really do should buy, and you should buy more than the two weeks of supplies that the CDC says, because if you actually look at the recovery rate from COVID-19, it takes... For more serious cases, which a lot of people, in even including people who are younger, in the 20 to 45 category, a lot of cases become serious. It takes about six weeks to recover. So you want to have supplies for six weeks, not two weeks. And don't make sure to get more supplies than the CDC says, but you don't need uh, you know, a year's worth of supplies and certainly things that you're not going to eat, consume later. So think about that. So that's kind of the reaction. And of course, a lot of people are getting guns and ammo, which is also a pretty dangerous reaction. That's about problematic. Now, on the other hand, there are some people who are just fleeing from the problem. And fleeing from the problem looks like, oh, the flu comes along, you know, kills some people, whatever. And this is a very irrational perspective on the question as well, because Look at what's happening in other developed countries. You, know, you have the flu killing people in Italy as well, right? So it's, that's not the nature of the beast. The nature of the beast is that COVID-19 is coming. It's more deadly than the flu. That's one. Second, it's coming on top of the flu. So it's not simply, you know, we have the flu. But our hospitals are running pretty close to capacity, regularly speaking, with the flu season, during the flu season, especially we had a pretty bad one this last flu season. So the 2019-2020 flu season is pretty bad. So our hospitals already were not too far from capacity. Now add to that another disease that's much more deadly than the flu and one that requires much longer hospital recovery time than the flu for people who are seriously ill. That is, you can't compare that to the flu. It overwhelms the medical system. That's the big problem that it overwhelms the medical system. So people who are treating it like the flu, well, I mean, imagine <laughs> that many more people going into the hospitals and then staying there for a much longer time to recover. So this is a very serious situation. Now, the big problem with the 
COVID-19 from either case, both people who are doing panic shopping and people who are ignoring it. The fight response or the flight response is that they're not thinking about the long term. And this is another one of our cognitive biases. So we have a cognitive bias called hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting causes us to be very short-term oriented and discount, excessively discount. So that's hyperbolic discounting, excessively discount the long term. In the savannah environment, the long term didn't matter. You know, we couldn't in put our money, we couldn't, you know, kill a mammoth and freeze the meat. We didn't have banks to invest our resources into. We couldn't invest our equity into a house. We couldn't, uh, you know, invest into our own professional development, whether our mental health or our health in terms of, you know, I don't know, getting some career develop professional development. You're not going to become a better axe chipper, right? So that was not something that was available to us to have such personal development, personal growth, professional development. So the future didn't really matter in that savannah environment. It wouldn't help our survival to be oriented toward the future. And so right now we're not oriented toward the future. And that's a very big problem because we're not recognizing the long-term consequences of COVID-19 for the whole world, including our relationships. So there's another cognitive bias that I want to highlight here called the normalcy bias. Now the normalcy bias causes us to see the future as being similar to the past, so normal, not really different. We ignore the likelihood of major disruptions, again, because in the span environment, we didn't really have to deal with them. So it's intuitive for us to assume that the future will be like the past. And we don't tend to think about the kind of major disruptions associated with long-term slow-moving train wrecks like COVID-19, which is a slow-moving train wreck. It's going to change our lives in very powerful ways. We're going to have to spend, I mean, Vaccine won't be around for you know, the next 18 months, according to the best healthcare experts. And that's in the most optimistic scenario, that it'll take, another, take about 18 months. Then it'll take me about an, another year to produce, ship, and distribute, and vaccinate everyone. So we'll be dealing without a vaccine for the next two to three years in the most optimistic scenario that the first vaccine is perfectly 100% effective, which it's not likely to be. You know, likely we'll be dealing with it for quite a bit longer than two to three years. Given that, we'll have waves of restrictions of staying home when there's going to be disease outbreaks, you know, then the outbreak will flatten, we'll let people go to work, then it will start up again, and we'll have to have, again, a few weeks or months of being shut-ins. So this will really change people's behaviors and change their thinking patterns, change their relationships. You need to be much more prepared to have virtual relationships with people who aren't part of your immediate household because that's how you'll interact much more in the next couple of years at least. You need to make sure that you can develop comfortable relationships with people in your household because you'll be spending much more time in each other's company. So you need to also take care of people who are in the category of people who are more vulnerable, which is people who are over 50-ish in that category, and people who have underlying medical or people who have underlying medical conditions. So anyone with any underlying medical condition, which causes decreased immune system, who are younger than 50, and people who are in their 50s and older, they are vulnerable, and including some people who are under. So if you're if you are younger than 50 you're not and don't have underlying conditions, you're not safe from having a serious case of COVID-19, but you will most likely not die, at least if you have access to a hospital with a ventilator, which is not guaranteed in a number of areas right now due to the impact of COVID-19. So this is the kind of trouble that we're running into with COVID-19 and our decision-making. Yeah, so if you could tell President Trump 
to read one chapter, one cognitive bias in your book, which one would it be? Ooh, this is a tough one. Um, I would probably tell him to read about the confirmation bias. So the confirmation bias is basically putting on rose-colored glasses where we tend to ignore information that we don't want to see and look only for information that we want to see. It's very simple about whether it's about COVID-19 or anything else to cherry-pick information that confirms our beliefs and completely and totally ignore information that doesn't confirm our beliefs. And that harms us very much in our relationships in very many ways that you can imagine. But yeah, that's that would be the one chapter that I would tell him to read. Yeah, and I think you go into this in your book when we are uh, when we have a belief system that well, I never start fights in my marriage. <laughs> it's always the other person. Yeah. You look for data that seems to confirm that oh, there they go starting a fight with me again. And when you start a fight, you go, well, I only did that because of X, Y, and Z. I don't start fights. It was understandable. And so this confirmation bias not only gets in the way of our marriages, uh, causes conflict, but also can destroy nations, if you will. <laughs> yes, it can. <laughs> so um, thanks for coming on the show, Gleb. Give us your nonprofit and your book uh, one more time for everyone to uh, go to to buy the book and also to look into your nonprofit. Sure, of course. So the nonprofit, if you want to check out the popularization on this literature, is Intentional Insights at intentionalinsights.org. The company I run, which is a training, consulting, coaching company, is called Disaster Avoidance Experts. So that's disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's blogs, videos, podcasts, and so on. You can get the book from there. Or, of course, you could just go on Amazon. If your area is not in shutdown, you can go to a bookstore. But if your area is shut down, you can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere. The book is called The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Address Unconscious Cognitive Biases and Build Better Relationships. It's available in bookstores, like I said, everywhere, if you're able to get to a bookstore. And it's published by a great traditional publisher called New Harbinger, which focuses on publishing books for therapists and for a wide audience interested in psychology. So it has a lot of techniques that therapists can use and that ordinary people can use. Yeah. Thanks, Gleb. So uh, maybe in a year or so, we'll have you back on the podcast once this is all over or the, you know, the first wave is over and the election will also be over because I know you have a lot of interesting yes. ways of looking at politics and about voters and our, the way our brains work with regards to that. Um, and everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 